pick up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, hopefully I have enough here for Bible study. I usually guess about what I think we'll get through and try to have that much ready. 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, but let me read just a couple of verses to get us back into context. And hopefully uh, as we look through some of this, we'll also uh, we'll look at some other things that maybe people wouldn't quite notice as they're looking at it. Let me... Uh, Actually, let me go back into verse 19, and the reason is is because there's a reference back to specifically verse 20 that's going to come up here very quickly. So let me go back to verse 19. And remember, he is talking about apostasy. Uh, you had those that are being described as the antichrists or uh, in opposition to Christ. Specifically, as we look in the context, it appears he is clearly talking about the Gnostics. Uh, so let's read from verse 19 down to verse 24, and then we'll pick up in verse 25. John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. I'm going to talk about that word here in a minute. And ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. All right, so... Clearly, he has been talking about faithfulness as seen in opposition to these he's describing as antichrists, those who are opposed to the doctrine of Christ. Here in verse 25 of the second chapter of 1 John, he says, And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. Now, I'm going to go back for just a second to verse 24. Remember, he's talking about continuing in the Son and in the Father. Okay? And then he says, and this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Now, does anybody have anything that comes to mind where they may teach something unusual out of this verse? Specifically talking about this word, promise. This is the promise he hath promised us, even eternal life. Maybe you're not familiar with it because you've never heard it taught here. What do some people teach is the promise in Acts chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, or verses 38 and 39. Some teach the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Some teach it is a, the promise receiving a gift is miraculous gift tie that in with Acts chapter 8, and some teach that the promise is this, eternal life. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38 real quick, and then we'll come back to this. I could use my Bible, but since I got my software opened up. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where you tie in the next verse, verse 39. 
For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now many will say that this promise, and they'll tie it into uh, Joel chapter 2, but specifically this verse, they will say the promise is eternal life. Now I had an instructor who taught that Acts 2.38, the promise, uh, was not given here, this promise of this gift of the Holy Spirit, or for the promise. He did not believe it had anything to do with the miraculous. He believed it wholeheartedly had to do with this passage, and that what was received was eternal life. Now, we do receive eternal life as a faithful Christian when we obey the gospel, right? We do. Uh, and this is the go-to passage for many of them when they teach and believe that. So that's simply why I'm pointing that out. Uh, and I'm going to grab Jerry. That brother, um, he's not here to defend himself, so I'm not going to mention his name. Because if, if he was here, he may come up and explain with all... And he had a lot of verses that he, he tied together for his belief that the promise talked about there was uh, eternal life. Okay? I disagree with that when I go over to Acts chapter 8 and a number of other verses. However, I'm simply pointing out that's what many go to for that teaching. Go ahead, Jerry. Our soul is eternal either way. Mm -hmm. So there's no need for a promise, right? So the promise is, though, that we have a home in heaven. We have a number of promises. Contextually, when I go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, I don't think he is talking about this promise. However, this is a promise. Is what that brother in Christ teaching, is what he teaching uh, heresy, or is he teaching something that is not found in the Bible? I think he's misusing it out of context. However, I, I wouldn't go online and call this guy out as being a heretic because he believes a little bit different about one passage, and he thinks it means eternal life, where I think it means something else. In both cases, there, there are scriptural evidence to, to support I see no reason to sit and uh, I think he's wrong. I don't, I've never heard him bind it, though. He said, this is, how, uh, this is how I understand that passage, and here's the verses I tie into it. Um, has anybody here ever seen someone else teach that or read that? In my version, it says, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And that is a promise that he made to us. Uh, is there any other passages that come up where somebody may have a disagreement on it? Uh, but what they, well, how about this? I hate to even go to some of these examples. Has anyone ever heard they believe the Holy Spirit is in them, however, they don't believe that it does anything to them and they believe that it works through the Word? I've heard people actually say all that. And why do they, why do they go to the extent to make all those exclusions? <laughs> well, they know that if they don't make all those exclusions, uh, clearly they're going to be caught contradicting scripture. It's like, um, somebody help me out with his name real quick. He believes in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's going around, and him and, him and his son, and they go out and they debate on it all the time. Yeah, if you guys didn't hear that online, did you guys hear that name? Say it again, Jerry, because you're not on a microphone. Yeah, um, that person says, and he says it in debate all the time, that he does believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but he calls it a a non-miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Have you guys ever heard that or thought about how that could even happen? At any point, uh, he knows that if he doesn't define it that way, he would definitely be accused of a number of things, and, and rightly so. 
So I'm only pointing that out here not to attack anybody that believes it, just this is one of the passages they go to as a support verse for that teaching. Um, and since I brought it up, I don't believe by memory in school. I don't believe I don't believe by memory in school that they taught. I don't believe they ever taught what the gift was in Acts two thirty eight. Does that sound concerning to anybody? I don't believe we ever discussed that. Instructors discussed it discuss their beliefs in other books pertaining back to it. But when we hit that verse, that verse was never discussed, I don't believe, by, by my memory. I'm, hopefully I'm not mistaken, but I don't recall it. I'd look it up in my notes, but I don't have any left anymore. Uh, but they, there were numerous beliefs uh, amongst the instructors on that. Some believed it was miraculous, talking about the gift there. Some believed it was eternal life. Uh, and I think there was some other, other beliefs. But what's he talking about here? Here's what we know. From this verse and the previous verse, we learn, one, eternal life is a promise. There's no doubt about that. And as we already said, uh, you can find this uh, in a number of places. Two, this promise is conditional on our holding fast to that which we heard from the beginning. And therefore, the eternal life is not a present possession, but a conditional promise dependent on our remaining faithful. The promise, notice, is based on if. Right? It is based on if. What does that do for many in the world around us, uh, the religious world around us? Why does that cause issue? That's exactly right. They don't think they need to do anything. Huh? Once saved, always saved. That's the primary teaching. Here we have, we have a conditional promise. Now, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts around it. And we actually touched on that just a little bit last week. That's why it's so important to know what the Old Testament says, right? Because that's kind of a tutor on how God, he had a lot of ifs. Yeah. Yeah, there were always conditional promises. If you'll do this, I will, I will bless you and I will do this. When you go back to verse 24, he says, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Well, you can't continue in the Son and in the Father unless you abide by the if statement there. That totally rejects uh, any of the once saved, always saved stuff that we find being taught today. They would probably, I'm sure, disagree on a number of, um, number of accounts, however, and they would have to misuse Scripture to do it. Uh, this is the kind of statement that when you make this statement, and it's true, like Jerry said, when you go back to the Old Testament, a lot of times he would say, if you will, I will, right? If the nation of Israel will do this, I will bless you in this way. Conditional statement. Uh, when we go back to uh, the chapter of faith, to be considered faithful in all the examples, what did we find that they did? They were obedient, right? They weren't legalists. If you love me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So there are so many verses we can look at, but it is conditional here. So this is just one of another example of the many scriptures clearly teaching the conditionality of salvation and emphasizing this, the necessity of continued faithfulness. Now, what would some then... 
let's say this before we go. This could cause a lot of problems for somebody who doesn't study the Bible a lot because this is what they may hear. I actually listened to an interview of a woman I, uh, on YouTube. She said, my father was a minister within the Churches of Christ, uh, and I left the Churches of Christ because he taught continued faithfulness. Let's pause for a minute. Does anybody have a problem with teaching continued faithfulness? What he taught and what she heard were two different things. When he taught continued faithfulness, the idea was that you should always be found faithful. But what she heard was, I have to live perfect my entire life to go to heaven. That's not what he said. He was teaching continued faithfulness. She interpreted that in her mind as, you can't, you can't sin. Has anybody seen where that's been taught in the scriptures, that you can't sin and go to heaven? So when, when you begin to tell people, you have to be faithful to go to heaven, that's what some people hear. So if you're watching this on YouTube, the Bible doesn't teach you have to be 100% faithful your entire life after you obey the gospel. You're supposed to, but we know that nobody will do that. And that's why the New Testament also teaches that there's an avenue to deal with sin so that you can then be found faithful. The idea is, is your goal is to constantly be faithful, but you won't. And since you won't, there's a way to deal with that by repentance, uh, showing uh, repentance through your fruit, and then continuing to be faithful again. Go ahead, Larry. Yeah. I think some people who struggled with that idea is why they went into the Calvinistic idea of because I am a rank heretic sinner and I cannot be perfect my whole life, I need somebody to resolve that problem, and I can understand how they worked their way into the idea of uh, grace-only salvation, allowing them to be saved. Of course, it led to a number of other problems, right, such as unconditional election and so forth. So I understand how maybe somebody got there, uh, but it's because they have a misunderstanding of what continued faithfulness really means. Go ahead, Wendy. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, because if you can say, I can't do it on my own, and therefore I need the Holy Spirit to guide me and direct me, when you fall short, you have someone to blame, even if you're, only, even if you're blaming your, the carnality of yourself, right? That still poses problems, though, for those who say they are saved and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet they still continue to sin. And whether they recognize it or not, it clearly is, is contradictory. So they still have problems. One can see the same conditional truth taught in a number of passages throughout the New Testament. And we could look at uh, Luke 6, 46, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say. Here we, we've clearly been, and we see a lot of times where we're told, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the list would go on and on. All of those are conditional statements about salvation, right? You can't get around that. So again... There is no such thing as once saved, always saved. We see that being taught. I would say the majority of groups around us teach some form of that Calvinistic idea. And if they don't teach that outright, they may give the appearance that they teach that when they openly condone and allow sin. Right? So even if you went to a congregation, let's say a big community church, that teaches uh, free will and that you make choices... They, support, they seem to support this idea of a once saved, always saved, or grace only covering everything by the simple fact that they tolerate 
the sinfulness oftentimes by members of the congregation, right? I'm not aware of a lot of community churches where somebody will go up front and call out publicly sin that's taking place either by a member or, or even that occurred within the congregation, right? How many of you guys would be shocked here if, let's say the men got together and had a, a men's meeting on whatever, and we determined at that time that we, as a congregation, were in error because of, let's say, something we were doing. Let's say we determined one of our practices during worship was erroneous. What would a lot of congregations do if they came to that conclusion? Do you think they would go up front and announce it? No, they wouldn't. Why would they not do that? People don't want to admit error. Yeah. But the first thing they should have done is what? Come up to the pulpit and say, we've come to this understanding and we'd like to explain it and give the passages why we think we are in error, right? Because there may be people that, that have no knowledge. When we went to a congregation, I mentioned this before, the gentleman preached from the pulpit that you did not have to be immersed in water for the remission of sins to go to heaven. And I was very angry. I wasn't a Christian yet. I was very angry. And I went and told the elders that is unscriptural. I use that word elders very loosely. I went and told the elders that is, very un that is unscriptural. He needs to go back up to the pulpit and fix it. And they said, we can't have him do that because people would lose confidence in him. Guess who lost confidence in him real quick? And who else did I lose confidence in? The so-called elders who were supposed to be overseers of the flock. So that's why a lot of this stuff is not pointed out within congregations, even when somebody comes to the truth. Verse 26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. What things are you talking about, John? Well, specifically, what were we talking about in the earlier passages? You had those that were described as antichrists, these ones who were trying to deceive them. You go back and look at 1 John 2, verses 18 through 29. He wrote quite a bit there about this. And he is telling them this about these people that are trying to seduce them. When you look that word up, it's interesting. It doesn't just mean to deceive. It also means to cause someone to roam from safety, to go astray, or to err, or to wander out of the way. That's what these people, specifically I think in context these Gnostics, are trying to do. They are trying to seduce these faithful Christians into some erroneous beliefs. Okay, That's the problem going on. So that's why he is writing this. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, specifically when we look at the epistles, what do you guys think the majority of the time, when, if you think about them, what are most of the letters for? Correct, correction is usually what we find. You go to 1 Corinthians, you go to 2 Corinthians, you look at a number of these, and they're, they're dealing with common problems found within the congregations. It's going to come up here. So Jerry, Jerry just mentioned the miraculous gift of knowledge. That is definitely going to come up in context. It was hinted at earlier, and I didn't jump on the bandwagon and point it out yet. Have you been studying this, Jerry? Or are you just, you're just going with it? It's already been hinted at earlier in the chapter. I didn't say anything. I let it go. 
but you're going to notice here in a second that it doesn't it does appear that he is talking about miraculous knowledge okay we're going to get to that in just a second so here's the purpose of why he's even writing to them he is trying to put them on guard against false teachers specifically again as we look here at what's being taught and so forth the gnostics now we're not possibly dealing most likely we're not personally dealing with uh the gnostics but we deal with much of the same air which is called simply by a different name well what did the gnostics believe right we have those around us who i would say they meet the qualifications of being anti-christ or opposed to christ in his doctrine and what do they teach well there are those who deny christ as part of the godhead do we have that today Absolutely. Looked at a book the other day written by a Michigan native, and by memory it was called, yes, I remember. By memory, this Michigan native with a, uh, I think he had a doctorate degree, wrote a book called The Evolution of the, uh, the Evolution of New Testament Writing. Anybody have an idea what he believed? He believed that the different writings from the different apostles led the, or the inspired writers, led the other writers to then build upon their own books. Uh, does anybody, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, anybody know, I won't tell you what letter it is, but the something theory. Anybody remember the letter? Q theory. We ever talked about Q theory in here? We have. I opened up his book, skimmed through it, put it back down. And not only from the title did I know it, but from reading his writings, he did not believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. If you don't believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, you wouldn't have any problem denying Christ as part of the Godhead. You might believe he was a man who lived. You might believe a number of things. But there are those that clearly believe that Christ was not a person of the Godhead. What has he been called? Right? He was a fraud, some said. Some have said he was a lunatic. Right? He's a fraud and a deceiver. He was a lunatic. There's been all kinds of theories. Uh, you've got people today who believe, he, well, he was a really good person, but he wasn't, he wasn't the Messiah. There are those who deny the conditionality of salvation, and they reject the if they're in 1 John 2, 4. That would be those that believe in once saved, always saved. Gnostics had a big problem with the idea of remaining faithful in a body when your body is what causes you to sin because it's inherently evil. Right? Had the same, got the same problem today. So what do we understand as we look here and we see this warning? He's talking about them that seduce you. Well, all, we, we were not dealing with the Gnostics, but all error is dangerous and we ought to be on the lookout as a form of self-protection. And that's, again, a purpose of what we find this being written for, just as we find many of the epistles. Constantly there were warnings being given to them about people around them trying to cause them to, to believe error. This is going to tie into the, what Jerry just talked about. All right. Verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. What would some say that this anointing is? Holy Spirit. And ye need not that any man teach you. Why don't they need anybody to teach them? Mmm, good question. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is the truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The word anointing here, see that word charisma? 
In the Greek, it actually says the ho, the charisma. And let's go on over to, did I put the verse up here? Romans 6.23. I'm going to take a little sidestep here. Romans 6.23. How many of you know this passage? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many of you guys know that passage? We all do, right? Romans 6.23. Here's what I want to point out. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, guess what that word gift is? Charisma. Charisma. It's the exact same word that we have here for the word anointing. Coincidence? Well, let's go back and look. Let's swap the words out. But the gift which ye have received of him abideth in you. Miraculous gift in the first century, anybody might think. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same gift teacheth you of all things. What's the gift we're talking about? Gift of knowledge? And is truth and is no lie. Why would that be? Because it's a miraculous gift allowing them to know those among them who are false teachers. Right? Even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The anointing, the charisma which ye have received. This anointing, or as it's referred to earlier, an unction is contextually related to knowing all things. There's no debate about that. The gift is tied to them knowing all things. That's what the passage says. And it even appears to possibly be a miraculous knowing or a discerning of spirits or false teachers. We're talking about antichrists here. And again, I would go back to look at Romans 6.23 where they use the exact same word. I think there is a very good chance that that is what we're talking about here. Jerry mentioned it earlier. It hinted at it earlier, but I didn't touch on it because I wanted to wait till we got here and looked at the actual word. The anointing is the exact same word in Romans 6.23 used to, dis to describe the gift of God. The word here, a charisma, is a gift, and this gift, notice this, but as the same gift teacheth you all things. I think very likely that's what we're talking about. Would that have been uncommon in the first century? for you to have received one of the miraculous gifts by the laying on of an apostle's hands, which, is, which allowed you to discern spirits or to have uh, miraculous knowledge, specifically pertaining to the scriptures, and to be able to say, that guy's a false teacher. It existed and it happened. And it appears from here that that's very possibly what he's talking about. Did that just blow your mind or does that make sense? Go ahead, Larry. Let's go ahead and work through it. This word right here, but the anointing, that Greek word there is charisma. And it is the same... Huh? Just one second here. Um, comes from the same base though yeah comes from the yeah here let me see I didn't check to see the number I didn't check to see the actual uh, 
word here. Let's see, anointing 3588. Let's go back to the other passage I was in. If I made a mistake, I have no problem admitting it. Let me go back and look. Oh, sorry, wrong verse there. typed it in wrong just a second sorry about that uh, they do have a different word here but it's the same in my Greek I have let's see 5486 I have the exact same base word in mine. In verse 27, I have 5545, which is chrisma. Uh, it is a different Greek word, but I've got, I believe it's the same base word. And I will go back and double check it just to make sure I didn't make a mistake. Yeah, I have different... Uh, it says it comes from 5483, and let me double check here. I will go back and double check. I believe we have it from the same from the same base word, but if I'm mistaken, I'll bring it up. However, and if I'm wrong, I'm, if I'm wrong, we'll cover it. I'll uh, go back and double check. I showed it was the same base words on mine. However, Jerry had pointed out that he believed it was from the from miraculous belief. I think that's what we have going on here. Uh, maybe I will not be able to use those words to confirm it, but I'm going to go back and double check. Uh, and I didn't pull up. I'll go back and look and see, see what the, uh, any of my other notes say on it. So I will come back to that passage next week. Uh, and, and guys, that's exactly what we're supposed to do as Christians, right? What, we're supposed to be like the Bereans. If something doesn't seem quite right, if, if there was a possibility I made a mistake, or if something doesn't jive, we go back and we double check it. That's exactly what we do. So... Uh, I have no problem with that at all. I still think it's based on the same base words, but I'm going to go back and double check. Yep. It has a different number, but in the definition of, this is in 1 John 2.27, it's C-H-R-I-S-M-A, but it says figuratively the special endowment or chrism of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm looking at right here. Yeah, that's what I have for... I show 5545 referring back to 5548 for that anointing, specifically is tying back to a special endowment of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 623, for the gift of God, which is 5486, again the word charisma, 
It says uh, a spiritual endowment, religious qualification, or miraculous faculty. Uh, I believe the two words uh, coincide and are based on the same base there, but just to make sure, I will go back and double check. All right. So I do think they still go together, and I think that's exactly what he's talking about. However, we'll come back to it. So the passage isn't teaching, though, here a continuous revelation. Um, who teaches continuous revelation today? That's why I'm pointing this out. Because it is possible that they did have revelation that these people were false teachers, they were antichrists, and they, they knew it miraculously. But the Scriptures is not teaching continuous revelation. There's a number of reasons why. What do the Scriptures say is going to happen with the miraculous? That it will cease. So we're not teaching continuous miracu uh, miraculous revelation. We have to make that statement because who does teach that today, specifically? Pentecostals, uh, some of the Assemblies of God, uh, community churches, there's a bunch of them. There's a ton of them that teach that. So that's not what he's talking about. He's also not teaching that we're to be led by the Holy Spirit. You could actually say these people were being led in a way by the Spirit, but it was because they had a, if, if indeed they did, they had a miraculous gift, and that miraculous gift which allowed them to have knowledge, is what, they, that what was leading them. Not the Holy Spirit, it was the fact that they had knowledge miraculously. Yes, and that's why I believe that he is talking about a miraculous gift here. Go ahead, Wendy. Yes. Yeah, constantly over and over and over again. Uh, we'll touch on that too here, because clearly John has been tying that in repeatedly as he's talking about this call to faithfulness. Okay, so he's not teaching that they have a that there will be nonstop continuous revelation. I mean, the Catholics the Catholics teach they have it, but they teach that it's through apostolic succession, right? And so each pope then gets this revelation, which for anybody watching this who's Catholic, I just have one question for you. Why is it that popes can deem other popes' laws as being uh, in, in contradiction to Scripture or that they can say that a pope was mistaken? Uh, clearly, if everybody had apostolic succession and every pope spoke ex cathedra, as they say, no pope would ever make a mistake in their rulings, right? And yet they do and they have. So he's not teaching that. He's not teaching that we're being led by the Holy Spirit, by, a, by an indwelling. Rather, that these first century Christians had the truth, which is what Jerry just said, and we're talking about knowledge, and possibly that it was miraculous, which I think very, very likely is what he is talking about, regarding these antichrists who would seduce them. But they have the knowledge that these people are uh, they are not faithful Christians, right? They are in the classification of what we would call antichrists. All right, verse 28. And now little children abide in him. I think this goes back exactly, for anybody who studies their Bible, it goes back to exactly what Wendy was just saying when we're talking about being faithful to the Word. How do we abide in him? Well, we abide in his teaching. Uh, if you don't take that, if you don't take that understanding of what is being said here, that abiding in Him means, means abiding in His teachings. 
How, in what other way could you abide in Christ? Can anybody even think of a logical way to answer that question if you're not talking about following in his footsteps through his word? It's the only way, yeah, it is the only way we know. Now, some other places may say, well, it's, it's in the manner of love. Anybody ever heard that? We follow in his footsteps in the manner of love. We do, but what do they usually mean when they say that? They mean, yeah, we, don't really, we don't really talk about things we may disagree about because it comes off as unloving, and so we just kind of agree to disagree, right? We uh, major on the major and minor on the minors except I'm not aware of any major as opposed to minor teachings in the Bible, right? They're all major. Because if somebody sins, is that person worthy of salvation without repentance of the sin? Sounds like they're all equally bad to me when you, when you choose not to follow one, right? And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, this word actually could be translated a little bit different. I'm going to mention that in a second. When he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. All right. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the return of Christ, the manifestation of Christ, when he actually comes back, right? Clearly we're talking about the judgment. So the manifestation of Christ and his coming is, of course, the very same event. Premillennialism would teach that it's multiple events, right? That uh, one may be his 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 appearing for the kingdom, where the second one's talking about judgment, and they'll teach all kinds of number of things, but we're talking about the same thing here. And this word here, or the phrase when, that when he shall appear, this could actually, if you look the word up, could be translated as whenever. I think that helps a lot when you read it, right? And now little children abide in him that whenever he shall appear, I'm pointing that out for a reason, that indicates John's uncertainty as to the time of the event. John didn't know when he was coming back. And so it, I think it renders a little bit better to say whenever he shall appear. But I get the same thing, when he shall appear. It also indicates that as of the time of his writing, Christ had not yet Exactly. What does, I'm glad you brought that up. What else does that destroy which is being taught, well, specifically here in Michigan? It helps to destroy the idea of 8070, but they would say, no, it doesn't. And they would say, it doesn't because we date, and actually, I might agree with them on the dating, but for those who hold the late date, if this was written when most people believe, most people believe this was written about what year? 80, somewhere close to the book of Revelation. They, they don't know really when to date it, so they date it close to the book of Revelation. If that's the case, then this totally annihilates the idea of hyperpreterism. But they would say, I disagree with you on the dating. And I'll be honest with you, I think it probably was an earlier writing too. However, what you pointed out is exactly right. At the time of this writing, we know Jesus had not come back yet. And I do believe that this was prior or possibly an earlier writing than AD 70. But he didn't know when Jesus was coming back. I, I guarantee you John was not out painting on billboard signs, Jesus is coming back soon. Right. How many of you guys have seen that on the highway? I didn't paint it, but I see it. I see it all the time. Jesus is coming back soon. Well, Jesus is coming back. The soon part, that's the problem. We don't know when he's coming back. Uh, what's, what is soon? 
Is that 1,000 years? Is that tomorrow? Is that 100,000 years? When exactly is that? So he, at this time, John doesn't know when he's coming back, and that confirms actually what Jesus taught regarding the, the whole uh, return additionally. In Mark 13, 32, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus, Jesus doesn't know when he was coming back, right? Uh, the Son doesn't know, but the Father does. And nobody else knows. So that Jesus is coming back soon stuff, that, that's, that's not accurate. Yeah, the, it's clear that the date setters have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, but then we go back over to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For, your set, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, this is his return, the judgment, so cometh as a thief in the night, right? Thieves don't tell you when they're going to come. Uh, they don't make it known. So all those people that say, well, we're watching the signs, Right? Russia is having a conflict. This used to be, what was the guy's name? Uh, anybody ever watch him? Um, Van Impey. Yeah, Van Impey and also Hagee. Uh, both those guys and a number of others. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing Russia, the bear. They're totally misusing the book of Daniel, constantly misusing all of the revelation that's given there or the apocryphal writing. And they'll say, we see all the signs and we're building up to his return. Guys, he's coming back like a thief in the night. There's no signs that are, are leading the way saying Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, you know why, though, Larry? Because it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work, right? It's not. It takes a lot of time. There's a possibility you could make, make a mistake, but if you go over it and over and over it, and, and if somebody calls you on it and says, I don't know if that's quite right, we go back and study it again, right? It's a lot of work, and that's why a lot of people, that's why a lot of people go into them, as my wife said, no, I'm going to grab you guys. Her friend who went into Pentecostalism, there's no study for Pentecostalism, right? Hear my tie, see my tie, you speak in tongues, and you believe whatever you want. Nobody contradicts it or blames it. There's a lot of work to, to literally understand the Scriptures. Yep. Everybody all go at once and let's just all do this now because it's going to happen tomorrow. Doesn't make sense. Go ahead, Jerry. About the lot of work thing, you look at a lot of denominations around us and they put a lot of work in their works. They do. <laughs> a lot of effort into what they do. And it, it, it's so simple, really. I mean, our worship is simple. The way we're supposed to be a Christian is simple. But what they do is they actually put a lot of work in it. Well, it's funny we're actually talking about if you knew when he was coming back, you might wait till the last second. Does anybody know what one of the practices was of some of the early Christians, Christendom, uh, specifically even uh, Constantine and a number of those gentlemen? They used to wait until right before they died, or they thought they were going to die, to get baptized. You guys remember hearing about that or reading about that? Kind of playing with fire. Uh, but why would somebody do that? 
that I think that's part of it. Live the high life or uh, I think the other reason was the only other thing in my mind is that they didn't have a they did not have a full assurance in the con continued cleansing blood of Christ. And so they thought, well, if I wait until right before I die and then I get baptized, it doesn't really give me time to sin again. And therefore, when I die, I'll be I'll be cleansed. Right. What's the problem, though? What, what if you don't obey the gospel and get baptized right before you die? problem with waiting for anybody watching this or or here so when I was in school uh, we were told and this was actually an account a couple of students were studying with a guy he had been attending the church for years and years and years had never obeyed the gospel they had been they'd been studying with him and he decided he was going to obey the gospel and he said I'll do it tomorrow this actually happened they went to his house and picked him up. They waited the next day. He didn't go do it that night. He said, I'm going to do it tomorrow. They waited the next day. They went to his house. They picked him up. And on the way there, he said he wasn't feeling good. He asked if they could pull into the gas station until he was going to go to the bathroom. And he died in that bathroom on the way to the church. Now, what would somebody who believes in faith only say, though? You're telling me on the way there to get baptized, he died? And you're telling me he's not going to go to heaven? What does the Bible say you have to do? Yeah, what does the Bible, the question, yeah, the question is, what does the Bible say you have to do? And here's my question, why did he put it off for so long? Why did he put it off the night he decided to do it? They could have done it at his house in a bathtub. I always tell people when they, I've had people say, well, I'd like to do it, I'd like to get baptized on Friday. And I'm like, my first thought is, is why aren't you wanting to do it tonight? Do you not truly understand what's at risk here? I oftentimes wonder when I hear that if they, if they actually understand I don't think that most people, they, I don't think they really get the gravity of it when they say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. It makes me wonder if they truly understand it. Because uh, I know that when I, when, it, when I understood it and it clicked in my head, uh, they said, I told them I needed to be baptized. And they said, come down to the office so we can talk. And I said, no. Somebody needs to baptize me right now. And he said, I'm glad you said that, right? That's, that's where people need to be. My dad, my dad gets an extension every year on his taxes, so that's what some people are trying to do. Who had a hand go up? All right, we're already over. I'm going to have to stop. We're going to go back. I'm going to go back and look up the words there and make sure that, uh, that they, uh, they do have that same base word and that uh, I'm not wrong there. I have no problem going back and double, triple checking my work. Because, guys, I could make a mistake. So thank you for anyone here who said, I don't know if that lines up. Go back and double-check it, and I will. And we'll cover that next week when we get back. So I'll hand this over to Joe.